Hi, this is Susie Rigdon, manager of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more info on the 2019 festival, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and are particularly excited about our guest, Jane Brocks. Jane's fifth book, Silence, was published in January 2019. Her previous book, Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light, was named one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2010 by Time Magazine. She is also the author of Clearing Land, Legacies of the American Farm, 5,000 Days Like This One, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Nonfiction, and Here and Nowhere Else. Her essays have appeared in many anthologies, including Best American Essays, the Norton Book of Nature Writing, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. She has been awarded grants from the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, among many others. Welcome to the program, Jane. Well, thank you for having me. How do you approach research on such an extensive social history like silence, which ranges from the silent solitary confinement of the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philly to the silence of monasteries to the silencing of women? Well, I guess the the only way to answer that is I I have to follow my nose. <laughs> I really start out small with um, being curious about one particular thing, and then seeing where that leads and where that leads and where that leads. For instance, for this book, I hadn't brought the penitentiary didn't come into my sights until I was three years into the project. So I had done extensive research on the monastery, and only later decided that there was this pull between the penitentiary and the monastery, so I started heavy research on the, on the penitentiary. So it's just a matter of you know, going where the previous research leads you. Well, that kind of answers one of my other questions about how you settled on the juxtaposition of the kind of transcendence and punishment. When I was just focusing on the monastery, the material itself seemed to kind of be leaden on the page. It didn't, I, I couldn't see it um, carrying a whole book, at least not in a way I could write it. And it really, it wasn't until I had heard something about Eastern State Penitentiary and a little voice in my head said, go there. So I went to Philadelphia, saw the penitentiary, saw the cells, which looked very much like a monastic cell. And all of a sudden it seemed to click that this book could oscillate between the penitentiary and the monastery, between chosen and imposed, and that would be dynamic, a dynamic way to discuss these silences. Yeah, absolutely. And to build on this, you know, one of the things you wrote about with the penitentiary is the silence, even in the silence, the prisoners found ways to communicate. What does that tell us about the connection between silence and communication and humanity? Well, I think, I mean, one of the big things that I felt I discovered about silence was that every silence has elements of the imposed and the chosen. And that even in the imposed silence of the penitentiary, there could be elements that are revelatory or helpful. Not for every prisoner, but for some. And for some, it was totally incapacitating. But in the monastery, there is always that question of even in chosen silence, there can be something that, that feels imposed about it or, so, or something that's limited about it. And it, I think, for me, silence always contains those two possibilities, and as humans, we have to negotiate between those two things. Even in everyday conversations, I think, is this silence fruitful or is it controlling? Does that make sense? What would you consider a, a controlling silence? Because it's so well, loud today. Yeah, but say you're... you're 
speaking with some, or you're just, you don't communicate with someone. That could be a kind of uh, way to control them, correct? Interesting. You know, uh, uh, the silence can be used as a means of control. How can people respond to you if you, you make no, if you keep silence within? Okay. So with that in mind, what do you make of the role of silence today? Is it, is it always that way, or do we, is there much silence that's happening? Well, John Cage, the composer, made a wonderful remark. He said, silence is not acoustic. It's a change of mind, a turning around. And I think, you know, we live in a very noisy culture, but I think for many people, I mean, there are some people who have no choice but to sort of be immersed in the culture, in that noise. But for many people, it's a choice to keep silence at bay. And you can always choose to even take 15 minutes at the beginning of the day to sit in silence and explore what happens in that silence. It's not, I mean, it's a choice to fill our days with noise for most of us. And it's, it's a choice also to try to find a place for silence within. Does that make sense? Yeah, and feeling comfortable too. I mean, mm-hmm. Cage's, um, I might get the name wrong, is it 433? Yeah. The whole yeah. piece that, that lives in silence, and this is something I always play for my students, and it's, I get giggles at first yeah. when he's yeah. just sitting there, but then figuring out what's silence, what's music. Yeah, yeah. How do you work with it? Interesting thing about that piece is I suppose that you could never hear it again as it was first heard. When the sil- when that first audience was absolutely um, bewildered by, you know, they had this expectation of hearing music and, you know, the pianist sat down and didn't play a note. And John Cage said afterward that, you know, people were storming out of the... <laughs> <laughs> and it was in a rural setting, and he said, you know, and, and there was very interesting music all through their storming out. You know, there was the sound of the world outside. There was the sound of their impatience and anger as they were leaving. So, I mean, he was attuned to, you know, what, you know, they were making a kind of music even in their resistance to his, you know. He was just saying, listen to the world, really. And that's such a difficult thing yeah. to do sometimes. yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. So one of the silences that I mentioned that you talk about is the silencing of women. And mm-hmm. I know that you've done a lot of research in like historical methods. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about some of those historical methods? And then maybe we could talk about some modern methods or do women have more of a voice now because of technology? Yeah, that was the hardest section of the book for me to write, frankly. And sometimes I just had to turn away from it and work on another part of the book because it's grueling historically for even um, they were punished for seeming to talk too much or talk too loudly in colonial America they were put on a dunking stool um, tied up put at the end of this machine and dunked into a pond and they could be dunked four or five times until they promised in 16th century England they had actually a, a bridle put over their head a an iron cage put over their head with a, a bit that went in, that lay on their tongue so that they couldn't move their tongue and were often paraded through the street. So it was just these uh, humiliating and physically horrendous punishments for simply being perceived to speak too much. And I don't, you know, uh, into the 19th century, people could be charged with being gossips or scolds. Oh, and even in the 
penitentiary, I mean, to me, this was really illuminating in that there were no, in the original um, design for the penitentiary, there were no spots for women, not because um, women didn't offend, it was because women, the idea behind the penitentiary, it was a place of redemption, where their silence and solitude would lead to the prisoner's redemption, but women who transgressed were not thought capable of redemption. So it went, the demeaning of women was very deep. So instead of this place of redemption, where would they go? I mean, women were often, I mean, they were often um, jailed. You know, they were, they were in the chaos of the jails, which was very different from the penitentiary. And it was mostly, you, you know, for being um, prostitutes or petty thieves. Most women didn't commit serious crimes. But th then they would be jailed and then let out into the world. So, but there was no, you know, they didn't, the idea of redemption for women was not part of the discussion of the penitentiary. So now with all of this noise and social media and these platforms that can really reach around the world, do you feel like women have more of a voice or their voices are amplified or do you still have some fears about silencing of women, perhaps maybe in some countries more than others, or? Well, certainly throughout the world, there are countries where women definitely are still silenced. And in our culture, our particular American culture, I think women have more of a voice now. I think it's much more complicated now, and I think there are still very, the ways of silencing women are more subtle, maybe, now. Um, but I still feel as if it's a fight to be heard, to be taken seriously, to have the weight of our words be, being given the same weight as other people in the culture. So I think that silencing has become more complicated for women. So shifting gears a little bit, um, I listed several of your books in the, in the intro, and your other books have tackled similarly large and powerful topics like the history of artificial light and the legacies of the, of the American farm. You, you mentioned your nose leads you in those directions. Mm -hmm. So how did your nose lead you to those directions? You know, my writing career started in a very sort of modest and personal way. I was writing about my, ex my own experience with my family's farm and my family's heritage. And gradually over my first three books, the lens widened and I started seeing my family's experience on the farm in relation to the immigrant experience in America and also the experience of farming in America. And so every book just made the circle around farming and our personal farm a little wider. And I think my experience of writing those three books over the years gave me a little bit more confidence with research, with my, you know, gave me time to sort of settle into my own voice as a writer. And so when I came to writing about light, I had originally thought I would be writing about rural electrification. It was a much more specific book. My idea for the book was much more specific. But I started reading the backstory. You know, I thought, well, if I'm going to write about this, I have to read about uh, electricity in general and the history of light, because light, electricity was often just um, joined with the idea of light. And as I started reading the backstory, it was such a wonderful story. And so many people would say to me, you know, I never think about light. I mean, we all just flick a switch and it's on. And how for most of human history, it was so hard won. I thought, well, this is the story. And telling the larger story will, will give significance to the story of rural electrification in a way that 
just telling the story of rural, rural electrification on its own cannot. So that's how I fell into that abyss <laughs> of, of writing that. So they, I never start out with a huge idea. It just sort of builds to that's where sort of everything leads. That's so interesting. And your research process, do you find you do a lot of archival research or interviews? How do you approach these topics and dig in? You know, I start reading books, going to libraries, going to, you know, for the silence, I went to the Pennsylvania Historical Society, you know, reading bibliographies, going from there. I went to some monasteries. I talked to, um, I went to a monastery in Massachusetts of Trappistine nuns and spoke with a nun about silence for an hour. Went to another a hermitage to have silent meals with um, some brothers. So I didn't do many, I, I'm not much of an interviewer in part because so much of my work is historical. So that I, I, I'm more in the library archives um, historical society world than I am of in the interview world. Interesting. Yeah. So you wrote about artificial light, which has just absolutely changed everything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for us. Do you think the artificial light is one of the most influential inventions? Or is there something else you think that is above that? I think it is. I, I mean, I, I'll say something about light and silence together. You know, having written these two books, one after the other, I'm almost seeing our human journey as a, an emergence from darkness into light and an emergence from silence into sound. You know, the, the world has gotten lighter, the world has gotten noisier as, you know, as our, the human journey has progressed. So, and I wouldn't have understood that certainly before I started writing Silence, but as I was writing Silence, I, I saw that it was really the tw- a twin journey, you know, not from darkness to light, from silence to noise, yeah. So what's the next topic on the horizon for you? I'm, I'm changing directions a little bit. I, I want to write a book about how single women inhabit their homes. <laughs> I, li- I live by myself in, um, in a house I own, and it's an old New England house, and there was a widow there at the um, beginning of the 20th century, and I actually bought the house from the a widow. So for maybe over a third of its life as a house, it's been inhabited by single women. And I, I just want to explore how women inhabit space. Do you think you're go, you'll go back pretty far historically or looking in a modern sense or modern comparing to the historical? Um, but, I mean, I'll go back as least as far as the house itself, which is about 1850. But I will probably, uh, you know, have little tentacles going further back in time. And I'm not quite sure what the scope, I have no idea. I'm just writing little vignettes and following my nose (laughs) (laughs) and seeing where that will lead me and um, you know there's plenty of material I mean the big challenge is sort of finding the shape in the material that's going to be the book there could be a hundred books on silence there are more than a hundred books on silence published and I had to keep asking myself what's the story I'm going to tell what about silence pertains to this book not everything about silence can be in this book so that, I mean, I mean, I think I'll still be looking to ask those kind of questions about this topic coming up. How does revision shape your work? Because it sounds like discovery is a, just a huge 
influence as you're writing, discovering the Eastern State mm -hmm. Penitentiary and moving from there and seeing that conversation form. But once you have everything done and you start asking these questions, what is it that this book is doing? How does that influence your revision process? Well, I think that I've come to see that the writer you have to be at the beginning of a project is very different from the writer you have to be at the end of a project. That the beginning of a project has to be wide open and you have to allow everything to come in. And at the end of a project, you really have to work on shaping, you really have to work on rewriting and reseeing and um, putting things in shape and order and seeing how things, one thing magnifies another thing and how they should be placed um, in juxtaposition to each other. Or So the beginning is about entering the wilderness, the end is about discipline, and so it's very, I think it's, I think that's one of the big challenges of being a writer is not to rein in the book too early and not to, you know, let the wildness go on too long. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So maybe the answer is, is following your nose, but yeah. for, for a last question, what advice do you have for people? You know, you, you mentioned you with artificial light, we're around it all the time, but never think about it. Yeah. So what's your advice to people to help them notice? some of yeah. these things. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll maybe end with the, a line from my dear departed father who was a farmer to the end of his days and he would just say, stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's just, you know, everything is interesting. You know, it's, it's your job as a writer to find out, you know, the nuggets that make it really compelling. And so, I mean, there isn't a topic that can't be made interesting there you have to love the you have to love what and be curious about what you're writing about or else it will be dead on the page and that curiosity is what's going to have to carry you so i think you do have to you know figure out what what's attracting you to a subject and why you want to write about it well thank you so much jane for coming by and speaking with us today well it's been a real pleasure thank you for having me for more information on Fall for the Book, visit fallforthebook.org or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. <laughs>